This is Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Primal Screen is about movies, from the ones on the big screen to the ones you stream. Hope you enjoy the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. Primal Screen, a Triple R film criticism show and podcast. I am your host, Paul Anthony Nelson, and joining me in the virtual studio are carryover champions, Flick Ford. Hi. <laughs> Thank you for calling me a champion, and I'm not sure if I'm feeling that, that <laughs> look, I'm going to go with it. <laughs> and by virtue of you were, here la- you were here last week and here again this week, so you're a champion. Our other carryover champion is Sally Christie. Hello, Paul. It's been it's been a little while since the three of us have all been. Yes, it's been together. a minute, hasn't it? Hasn't it? it? I, yeah, I feel like it might have been early June or something. Really, it's we all been, need a little break. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's been quite some time. I think, um, yeah, yeah, eighth of June, I think, or something. It's wow. a bit crazy. As Melbourne heads into stage four restrictions with cinemas closed for until at least mid. September. We're continuing with our popular ISO Spotlight episodes to help you ride out this challenging time with some terrific movie recommendations you can check out in the comfort of your own home. We're plugging in the amp and cranking up the volume to focus on a trio of music documentaries, all of which can be found on the documentary streaming service DocPlay, as well as other rental and streaming services. First, we'll delve into the short life and incandescent career of Roland S. Howard in Lynn Marie Milburn and Richard Lowenstein's Autoluminescent. Roland S. Howard. Then we'll head to dirty old New York City of the 1970s to explore the cinema and music of the No Wave and Cinema of Transgression in Celine Danaher. Uh, I keep saying Danaher whenever I see her name. As an Essendon <laughs> supporter, this is particularly <laughs> difficult. It's the, the I and the E are the other way around. It's done here. Celine Dunhier's Blank City. And finally, we'll sit and hang out with one of Japan's greatest composers as he confronts the nuclear tragedy of Fukushima and his own failing health in Stephen Nomura Shibel's Ryuchi Sakamoto Coda. And also, as you listen to us chatting about these films, please feel free to hit us up on our social media channels and leave a comment. Just search for Primal Screen on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Now it is time for the Primal Screen News Bulletin of the Week. This week, we mourn the passing of Alan Parker, the British director who made his directorial debut with 1976's, his feature directorial debut, I should say, there was a telly movie before that, of 1976 child gangster musical comedy, that's a hybrid you don't see too often, (laughs) Bugsy Malone, which Mm. seemed to be a massive film for Australian kids growing up in the late 70s and early 80s. It was on TV all the time. It was, wasn't it? Baked into our DNA. Um, Bugsy Malone led into one of what I think is one of the greatest directorial streaks in film history. 
with the true life Oliver Stone penned Turkish prison drama Midnight Express, the brutally honest New York art school musical Fame, the equally honest divorce drama Shoot the Moon, the rock phantasmagoria of Pink Floyd The Wall, the affecting post-war psychological drama of Friendship Birdie, uh, the chilling horror noir Angel Heart, and the Oscar-winning civil rights drama Mississippi Burning, as well as my personal favourite of his films, the adaptation of Roddy Doyle's novel about working-class Irish kids who want to sing soul music, The Commitments. That's, I think um, The Commitments has such a special place in my heart. It was Sorry. one of those films when I was growing up, I would watch it over and over and over again. I think it was probably the first Alan Parker film that I saw. And, yeah, I love his exploration of working class, you know, in The Commitments and fame. Yeah. Yeah. Sad. <laughs> yeah. He's such a great, but that streak 76 to eight, like 76 Amazing. to 88. I've never seen 1990s come see the paradise, but if we extend that to 91 and the commitments, it's an amazing run. And the commitments mm-hmm. is just, it's so dear to my heart as well. Yeah. I can quote yeah. it verbatim. Yep. Uh, I believe like a bit of a, a bit of a trivia for anyone that's taking notes. First film I ever saw on a date. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we could ISO specials. Dates. We could first do, films I? we saw on a date. <laughs> date a, yeah. a date episode. I think probably one of my worst ones. I went on a date with someone to see The Passion of the Christ. <laughs> I can I can beat that, Sal. I went on a date and saw Antichrist. Oh my god! <laughs> that does that that that's <laughs> okay. This needs to be a spotlight. Special. What a what a trilogy that would be. <laughs> date movies. Um, but yeah, I I yeah, the commitments means a lot to me. I I I'm kind of baffled when it's not considered one of the capital G great movies. I, I think that too. I think it really is. And it, it doesn't it's even feel perfect. like it's overly easily accessible at the moment. It's not. It's not and streaming anywhere. It's not rentable yeah. anywhere. We were going to watch it last night. You can't find mm. it. So I had to order a Blu-ray. Yeah. Uh, Killer Carl Chapman says his uh, date movie was In the Realm of the Senses and Breyer's Romance Double. <laughs> that yeah, is, that's a huge move, the Romance Lord. Double. Uh, yeah, we've got to do a date episode. As yeah. a lesson, lesson to Killer Carl, <laughs> never take a girlfriend to Cinematheque on the first day. <laughs> um, so we also mourn the passing of the American actor Wilfred Brimley, whose grumpy and or lovable mustachioed and spectacle visage is likely best known to our listeners as Outpost 31's ill-fated Dr. Blair in John Carpenter's The Thing. A man of many talents, he served in the Marines in the mid-1950s and carved out a parallel career as a jazz singer, which I knew nothing about until today, before coming to acting late in life, debuting in a bit part in 1969's True Grit. He was also famous for his roles in 1979's The China Syndrome, 1985's Cocoon and its sequel, Cocoon The Return, a number of Robert Redford films such as The Electric Horseman, Brubaker and The Natural, and in the 90s, films I saw him in in at the cinemas, uh, the Firm with Tom Cruise, Hard mm. Target with Jean-Claude Van Damme with a particularly dodgy Cajun accent, <laughs> and In and Out with Kevin Kline. Although his last film was 2017's I Believe, his last major film appearance was in 2009's Did You Hear About the Morgans with Hugh Grant and Sarah Jessica Parker. Brimley passed away of kidney disease at the age of 85. Now that we're here in Melbourne, uh, uh, being forced to spend even more time in our homes than usual, thank goodness MIF 68 and a half is arriving on Thursday, August 6th, to take us on a cinematic journey around the globe, all the way until August 22nd. The reduced online version of Australia's biggest and longest-running film festival 
are screening 68 features and 44 short films across 17 days with uh, eight spotlight screenings that are date-specific, screening for one night only, starting with the sold-out opening night screening of Kelly Reichardt's First Cow and the closing night screening of Pablo Lorraine's Emma. Showcase screenings are $20 to rent. All other features are $14 and available for the entire run of the festival, while short films and a handful of features are free to rent. And in a divisive move, allegedly possibly incepted by a major Melbourne newspaper, a 69th feature, Austrian director Sandra Wallner's sci-fi provocation, The Trouble with Being Born, was controversially excised from the lineup when a couple of experts on sexual assault, one of whom had only watched half of the film, brought forward their objections to the film's content, which involves an android made in the image of a 10-year-old girl and her relationship, both emotional and physical, with her inventor, who created her in the image of his late, do- of his late daughter. Given the concerns were reported in the news and that this year's festival is an online edition to be viewed in the privacy of people's homes rather than a controlled communal theatrical space has been said to be one of the main drivers for the film being pulled from the schedule. Even one film less, grab your tickets to the other 68 films of MIF 68 and a half at 2020.mif.com.au. That's 2020.mif.com.au. We'll be devo- devoting the next two weeks of Primal Screen on August 10th and August 17th to covering MIF 68 and a half's offerings. So please let us know what you're going to see. Any thoughts on the, uh, the cancellation of The Trouble with Being Born? <laughs> I've got some strong feelings. On yeah, that. I think I think we're all maybe on a similar page with this one. Yeah. I've had a lot of rants to friends. I'm I'm disappointed it's been cut to say that. Oh my! And it was the one f- that was my number one film that I was. Oh no! Oh, you know what? I feel terrible. I actually didn't know about this film until it got cut, and then I saw the trailer, and I was like, "Oh, I really want to see this." Yeah, <laughs> it looks amazing. It, it looks does. It does, and it's also I, I think we have film festivals, and we also have lack of, I guess, classification in film festivals, so that we are able to see films like this that promote conversation um, around these these issues and. Censoring that I don't think is a wise thing to do. And it's also, I mean, I think I think the one thing I think playing devil's advocate slightly is it being an online festival makes it a little bit of a different proposition, you mm-hmm. know, that, that that can be consumed in people's privacy of people's homes mm-hmm. rather than an out, you know, a sort of a more communal environment. That would be my one defensive yep. decision. But other than that, I completely agree. Even this is when, why when film was- festivals exist. When I was booking my ticket for this, the um the page on the MIF website was absolutely loaded with um, you know, warnings about the film, all this sort of stuff before this even happened. So I think that it would be pretty impossible not to go into this film without knowing some of the context to it. No. Um, yeah. So yeah, I think they covered themselves really well in that sort of situation. But yeah, it's a shame though because I think that it doesn't change cutting it doesn't change the situation. No, and no. um. Also, if someone were to wish to seek out that kind of material, it would be readily available, unfortunately. So mm-hmm. it's kind of one of those things that it, this could have been an opportunity for a really meaningful engagement. I mean, none of us have seen the film, so we can't really comment on it too much. But it's kind of, I think, a wasted opportunity to actually talk about these difficult issues. Yeah. I agree. And as ever, um, people need to know depiction is not endorsement. Yes. yes. Okay, listeners, please join us on the couch for our first film of the evening. Roland took London personally. 
like as if someone had built it to sort of to, to make him unhappy. But he may well have taken the world in that way. Jeremy and Greer had said this thing that an Australian never feels so lonely as the first year or so that they're living in England. I never feel so Australian. We went from being big fish in a tiny pond to being frog spawn in, in an ocean. It was bad. Autoluminescent Roland S. Howard from 2012 is the second film directed by Lynn-Marie Milburn and the eighth feature and third documentary directed by Richard Lowenstein. From myth to legend, Roland S. Howard appeared on the Melbourne, uh, the early Melbourne punk scene like a phantom. His lyrics, guitar style and early work with the birthday party shot him directly into the imagination of a generation. Despite the trials and tribulations of his career, in an age of makeover and reinvention, Roland S. Howard never sold out until passing away at the tender age of 50 in 2009. With recent moving interviews, archival interviews, and other fascinating and original footage, Autoluminescent traces the life of Roland S. Howard, capturing moments with the man himself and intimate missives from those who knew him behind closed doors. Sally, what about this film gives you shivers? <laughs> nice one. Nice one, Paul. Um <laughs> Uh, I really, I really love this documentary for a number of reasons. I am a very big Roland S. Howard fan, and he was just that kind of person that was such a Melbourne identity. I remember even being in high school, and there was people saying, "Oh, I saw Roland S. Howard at the video store," and I'd be like, "Oh my god, that's the coolest thing ever!" That he was just always this part of Melbourne, and it. Towards sort of the end of his life, the last, the early sort of 2000s, felt like I would go to his gigs every week. He would do residencies at Ding Dong and things like that. So I felt like it was a weekly thing that I would go and see his gigs. And then one, it was just after his second album was released, I was going to see him at the Northcote Social Club. And they said, oh, the show's been cancelled. He's not well. And then I think it was maybe a couple of nights later, there was a birthday party special on Rage and I was like, oh, this is cool. I wonder why they're doing this. And then I was like, oh, fuck, he's died. (laughs) And it was just this huge thing that had this massive impact on me, like this part of Melbourne had gone. Mm -hmm. And um, this documentary being made for me kind of was this nice so not moment, it's longer than a moment. He was hugely influential. But to be able to see all this footage and it was just, it felt really important to me to be able to, you know, I guess kind of have these memories out there and also for Roland's story to be told as mm. well, that it's he, he is easily often, um, I guess, lost within the birthday party and Nick Cave and all this kind of stuff. But his influence, like I said before, is huge um, on so many musicians. And, yeah, so I think that having that opportunity for him to have his own story is really important so that people can see just how hugely influential he was. So, yeah, so I love this and it's really it feels like a big chunk of Melbourne for me, this documentary. Yeah, that's such a beautiful way of putting it, Sal. And I think something that's really become apparent with this spotlight that we're doing on music documentaries is how important place is to music and yes we Mm. see that a lot in Mm. some of the other films we're going to be talking about but yeah capturing a time in Melbourne and also 
Um, but also, I, thought, I suppose the reach of his music. It's um, I kind of think back to when we we reviewed um, Vim Wender, Vim Wender's uh, Wings of Desire back in August last year. Yeah, yeah. And there's um this wonderful scene with Rollinus Howard and um, uh, and they're doing um Six Bells Chime and it's it's such a powerful scene. It really stuck with me and. You know, the film itself is this, like, uh, sorry, Wings of Desire, is this, like, beautiful reflection on, like, um, temporality and existentialism. Mm -hmm. And it really, it just plays in so well to that music. And that scene stays with me so yeah. much. Um, I also really love Roland as Howard, so this is a, just a, a wonderful um, excuse to return back into his music. Um, but I just remember him being so mesmerising in that scene and I never had the opportunity to see him live. But I suppose he just exists for me in these kind of film clips and, mm -hmm. and live performances that have been recorded. Um, and so I was thinking a lot about just how significant he is, particularly as a songwriter. And um, I think that Autoluminescent does a really good job of of kind of giving voice to this wonderful, it's like a, a reminder of his lasting legacy and, and the deep tragedy of, of his passing. Um and maybe in some ways a really good companion piece to um, Nick Cave's documentaries, um, like 20,000 20, Days on Earth and yeah. uh, what is it? One once, more time once more with, with feeling. feeling. Once more with feeling, yeah. It was funny. I was at a test screening of Autoluminescent before it was released and yeah. someone in the audience after it finished was like, did it have to have so much Nick Cave in it? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, it's kind of... It's it's quite heartbreaking that whole story. I didn't know of that before watching the documentary, um, but yeah, it's a it's kind of an I think like really interesting. As with a lot of the documentaries we're going to be talking about today, really interesting insight into the creative process and mm. some of the fractions, the fractures that kind of happen when you have these creative people involved with this project and have quite different um, perspectives mm. and. Um, yeah, I thought that the, the documentary, I think the one of the strengths of it is it really offers this close analysis of his songwriting. Um, and when I was a teenager, it's exactly, that was exactly that that got me into music, like really studying the lyrics and, and sort of pouring over them and reflecting on them. And um, I think more than anything, that kind of is what stuck with me. Um, so I liked that the film focused in on that. I mean, he's such a intriguing and, and complex character and I think that knowing about his death in 2009 kind of only adds to the tragedy of this film but it also like underscores his significance and um it's just so it, it's a real sadness about what we've lost really mm. I'm sorry I'm gonna be a sh like I <laughs> I had I don't breath. <laughs> no 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 not like not but I'm I had no idea who Roland S. Howard was. This is why this documentary exists. This well, you say that. It's interesting because, <laughs> yeah, I, I like, I like, I remember working at Acme. We had one of his albums selling at the thing. Why we had that at Acme, I don't know. It's a whole, that's a whole other meeting. But Pop Crimes, his last album was selling there. It's like, who is Roland S. Howard? Who is this person? And then the doco came out, and I knew he had something to do with Nick Cave and something to do with Nick Cave's old band, The Birthday Party, and. Um, and again, I'm not familiar with that period of, uh, of, of Cave's career at all. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I'm sort of more a bad seeds kind of person. And then, um, and so, yeah, it was, it was kind of interesting seeing who this person was. I feel like this film was clearly a massive labor of love for everyone involved. Like just a really adoring tribute by, and, and, and clearly an effort by all to really protect and preserve his legacy. Yep. Um, which was quite beautiful. 
Even his exes still seem to love him. Um, I know, I know they're all in there. <laughs> <laughs> it's so true. Like, the one where he's like, oh, we just hung out for a while. It's sort of platonic. And he just like looked after my kid, like just brought my kid home from school and then like had him play guitar on their tracks. And um, it was really sweet. Even reflecting on the times of his life when he was kind of most difficult. Um um, and you got the feeling he probably could be truculent at certain times, not in an yes. abusive way, but just in a very, you know, kind of like a artistic genius type way. <laughs> um, but as someone who wasn't at all familiar with his work, I did feel a little out in the cold. It did. I think the film does seem like a wake for friends, fans, and relatives. Mm-hmm. It really did play like a wake, um, which is which is perfectly fine if that was Milburn and Lowenstein's intention, which it quite possibly was. Mm. Um, but I felt it was that kind of a wake for, for friends, friends, fans and relatives rather than a work to introduce Howard to a wider audience. I was wondering when I was watching re-watching this, um, Paul, if you didn't know who he was, how accessible was this? Mm. That question came up definitely when I was watching this. Is this something that everybody can kind of go in um, not knowing who he is and still, you know, feel included? Yeah. Mm. And and that's the thing. And there's and there's docos that have been like that, that I've known nothing about the person and I watch it and I want to go out and yep. absorb all of their work. Mm. I, this wasn't for me. It was kind of like I still felt at a remove. Um, and at nearly two hours, it's a long time to spend out in the cold. But as yes. much as I'm mentioning cold i did like the warmth of this and i think that's what stayed with me the most um mm. the fact that everybody was it was, was it's so warm and and he seemed like you know and some and some of his lyrics were truly brilliant i am the kind of schmuck who like loves the screaming jets version of shivers <laughs> so, that they, and that was got quite popular didn't it it was massive it yeah, was like yeah. that's the only so it's like this is the only thing he's done that i've heard and it's because of the screaming jets <laughs> I'm sorry, I grew up like in a 3XY, E on FM, uh, Triple M kid. So I apologise to everybody. Don't apologise, Paul. That's where my, you know, I'm like Oz Pub Rock was my upbringing. Um, You know, (laughs) if if this were a Don Walker biopic, I would be 100% there. (laughs) Um, But I did, yes, I did respond to the warmth of this. His lyrics did seem truly brilliant and he did seem like a talented, honourable, gentle soul someone most worthy of a tribute. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think um, having Lowenstein involved in this because he's just so ingrained in, I guess, Melbourne's punk culture. Obviously, you know, he made Dogs in Space and um, We're Living on Dog Food, all those kind of great doc- films and documentaries that he, the way he um, he makes documentaries is really intimate, especially I think we looked at Mystify last year, did we? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm like yeah, and that way, yeah. 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 Um, the way that he, I guess, his use of close-ups and things like that with mm-hmm. people speaking, and the way in, in to contrast that with Mystify, where he made the choice just to use people's voices and not their faces now, so that there's not that um, sense of time that has passed. Say so with like Kylie Minogue looking how she does now compared to when she was with Michael Hutchins, but um, yeah. So I think it's really interesting how he creates that sort of sense of intimacy 
with his subjects and they're obviously all his friends as well. I uh, love but, yeah. how grizzled they all look. It's like, mm-hmm. I believe that you got big into heroin in yeah. the... <laughs> <laughs> I believe it. Yeah. yeah sure. <laughs> Feeling it. But also, I hate to say it, I pr- I could listen to Nick Cave talk all day. So, so could I. So could a... I. <laughs> that one person in the theatre couldn't. But I was like, you can't make a documentary about Roland S. Howard and not have some part of Nick Cave in it. It's very <laughs> No. You know? So autoluminescent Roland S. Howard is now streaming on DocPlay and Amazon Prime Video and is available to rent via or buy via YouTube, Google Play and Apple TV. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Listening to Triple R with Sally Christie. Uh, Primal Screen on Triple R is what you're listening to <laughs> with Sally Christie, Flick Ford, and myself, Paul Anthony Nelson. Always important to mention the show. Good save, uh, there, Paul. <laughs> and just uh, now, as we uh, continue our look at music documentaries this evening, please join us by the computer, television, or dare I say, smartphone of your choice for our second film of the evening. New York City was pretty much near bankruptcy, and it was like the Wild West. I was going out every night, and wherever I would go, I had this 16mm camera, and I was shooting a lot of the bands. Blank City from 2010 is the debut feature documentary directed by Celine Dunhier. Today, Manhattan is a byword for overpriced property, overexposed landmarks, and overdressed fashionistas. In the late 1970s, however, it was a rat-infested, crime-crippled, cheap and nasty, somewhere for America to dump its immigrants, its poor people, and most importantly, its artists. (laughs) Well, most importantly for the culture, its artists. Uh, Led by the punk rock, street art, and independent film movements, Music, art, and fashion and filmmaking burgeoned, fueled by drugs, dares, fads, feuds, and a fair helping of madness exploded throughout the city. Sally, did this just make you want to grab a Super 8 film camera, dress some friends up, bring a band in, all masked and socially distanced, of course, <laughs> and make some debauched art? Always. It's how I feel all the time. Just can't at the moment because I'm stuck indoors. <laughs> no, this for, this for me, this 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 New York, this time period, this is it for me. This is like the music, the film that came out of it. This is what genuinely makes my heart sing this kind <laughs> of art. So thanks for picking this, Paul, because it's, you know, a good one to kind of discuss. It seems so incredible that we have all these amazing artists working in this space at the one time and it's a relatively short period of time that, you know, we've got all this stuff like um, coming out of it, like Susan Selman Smithereens and, you know, lots of really incredible stuff. We see a baby Steve Buscemi in this film. Oh, isn't he so cute? <laughs> I know he is. But, and the way that um, this sort of starts off it looks as though this documentary could be something that I've seen a million times before with uh, looking at what a, you know, how run down New York was, you know, the blackout of 1977, all this kind of stuff. But it really tells a story that I hadn't really heard before. I, I am a fan of the, like, no wave cinema and the cinema of transgression. They do explore in this documentary. And I don't think that it had really been given, to my knowledge, um, much of a platform to be explored. And, it again, something that is really influential on lots of cinema that we see now that, yeah, we haven't really 
had much time dedicated to. So, yeah, this is lots of fun. This is this is totally my jam for sure. <laughs> How wonderful is it? I mean, we're not allowed to travel at the moment, but this is kind of offers this great opportunity to sink into. It's made me pine like, for New York. Like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, we, but we also know it's not New York of now. It's like, not. Now it's yeah, gentrified. It's not. Like it, tra- it travels us abroad and in time. Yes. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I am. Um, this is, a, this is a hugely ambitious project. Um, I've been watching too much Grand Designs. I feel like I'm overusing <laughs> the word ambitious project. <laughs> but anyway. Um, well, I've been watching too much RuPaul's Drag Race, so I'm saying <laughs> too much Shantae, you stay. So, you know, courses for courses. Yeah, look, we've all got our binge requirements. Um, this film is, yeah, it's, it covers a whole lot. Um, yeah. Political movements and all these different characters from this filmmaking period and you know, huge um, shifts in culture and art. Um, and, of course, like New York is a fascinating city and, like, especially New York in the 70s. Like there's mm. so much material here um, and so much change. So I think that this is such a, a worthy and engaging subject. Um, it is, I, my criticism would be that for a week on uh, music docos, I think Paul has snuck this one past us because it's not I mean there's music in it but let's be honest this is mainly about the filmmakers and Paul in Paul's defense though you've snuck through in Paul's defense one thing with all the documentaries that we're looking at this evening that I found really surprising. Very clearly, with Blank City, there's film tied in there, but there's <laughs> film tied into all of them, like they that kind of weaving yeah. with music and cinema. Um, yeah. yeah, which yeah, I found yeah. Pretty I beautiful. mean, yeah, I can't talk. I picked Coda. Come on, <laughs> but I'm I'm just saying that I think for for me this this. Um, for people who are listening in who are, like, wanting to seek out music docos, I don't know whether this film fits into that. Oh, it's not. Peop- yeah, but for people <laughs> oh, who are, not. like, <laughs> but if people are like, I really want to know about what it was like as a filmmaker um, living under the poverty line, you know, in this in this really amazingly creative time in history, I think this is a, a perfect film for that because there's so many candid interviews about the filmmaking process, about creative processes more generally, and that intersection of um, po- you know political um, movements and also just like how you capture on film and just working on each other's films and a bit of competition, but also this really seemingly supportive community in a lot of ways. Mm. So I think for that purpose, this documentary, um, we're talking about Blank City, um, for anyone who's just tuned in and wonders what this rant is about, Blank City offers that to to pe- for listeners. But I feel like the bit that when I, another criticism I perhaps have on this this film is that I got really excited when it made that shift into the hip hop scene and particularly like the collaborations that happened with graffiti artists and how there was this engagement with politics and this sense of like, um, finding a voice in this really creative way. And I feel like it, I wanted it to go further into that and it kind of went back to like, oh, but here's some more filmmaking, which mm. obviously, you know, as a film nerd I love, but I suppose I wanted a more more music in this. And I, um, that's something that I thought was missing and also just a bit more context because um, if you didn't know about these characters, like a lot of the the people who pop up I was familiar with, but I think if you didn't have that background, this would be a very confusing and maybe um alienating film to watch I feel like I understand what you're saying with um you know looking at the with the hip-hop section but I also feel like in 
there's we ha- we do have a lot of documentaries and things that are made about that that are readily mm-hmm. available. So I really like the things that they've chosen to focus on. Sorry, I f- have forgotten the director's name. Um, Celine Dunahir. Dunahir, not. Yep. Not Danaher, no. Not Danaher. <laughs> Turns out she doesn't play for the. Doesn't play for um, But yeah, so I like the way that she did kind of really focus on um, like Nick Zed and Richard Kern and things like that because yeah. I feel like they haven't been given as much of a platform. Whereas if we're looking at New York um, hip hop and um, that sort of political movement, there is a lot. There's a lot of yeah, content on fair. that. And yeah. also one one other thing that's really positive about this film female filmmakers get as much spotlight yeah, as male directors. I was really impressed mm-hmm. by that and really engaging um, discussions and I think that's really the strength of that. I was very impressed with with that kind of coverage. I think, Flick, your main concern is you wanted a music documentary. Yes. <laughs> I wanted a um, okay. Firstly, <laughs> I do apologise. <laughs> this is not strictly a music documentary. See, here's the thing. I saw it at MIF way back in 2011. My memory of it was a little hazy, being nine years ago. And when it came, because we were focusing on music documentaries on Doc Play. Um, and when it came up under Doc Play's music menu, I pounced upon it because I wanted, I love this period of art, film, and music to emerge out of New York City so much. Like you, Sel, this is fantasy camp for me. Yeah, me too. Like if I could, if I wasn't so terrified of being mugged and I could deal with cockroaches <laughs> and rats, this was exactly the kind of period I would love to yeah. live and work in. I was like romanticizing that, thinking that same thing, going, Oh, I just wish I was there. But then I was thinking, God, oh, you wouldn't survive there. Like, <laughs> seriously, get over yourself. Get me out of here. <laughs> um, I wanted to pick something that reflected an aesthetic and an approach that I love, that reflected my taste. Um, and so the thing is, it's funny because I was listening to your show a couple of weeks ago about epic cinema and mm-hmm. Sal, you were saying it was really hard for you to pick an epic because you don't really watch epics. Mm-hmm. I don't really watch music documentaries. I've probably seen about 20 in my whole life. Um, yeah, we did force this theme on you. so <laughs> You did. And so it was like, I look, I almost picked, my other pick would have been, my, my proper music documentary pick would have been Muscle Shoals, um, which is also great about the, uh, the Delta stu- uh, Blues and Soul Studio. Oh! Oh, wow. Okay. I didn't know that one. It's great. Um, okay. Another recommendation and also on Doc Play. And, but, um, but, yeah, it was only when I started watching this that was like, oh, a re-watching rather. It's like, wow, there's not much music in here at all. They talk um, about the Ramones. It's they fine. do. And they <laughs> shot the bands like they were shooting Bowie That's true. In, That's in, true. In, in, in New York City. Um, I just adore this no-wave ethos of just raw, dangerous, funny, effed-up work wild and silly and debauched and ragged, better done than good, as Elizabeth Gilbert might say. And that is, I guarantee you, the only time No Wave and the Cinema of Transgression and Elizabeth Gilbert will ever be mentioned in the same sentence <laughs> by anyone I on the she, planet I Earth. I did take a second going, he's like, is she from some New Wave punk band? Like, <laughs> who is Elizabeth Gilbert? No, this is Big <laughs> Magic Eat, Pray Love. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I just find it. I just find this movement so inspirational. Mm. I own two Super Eight cameras. We bought some rolls of film a couple of years ago. I was just dying to dig them out and shoot something after finishing this. I was also struck, like you, Flick, by the volume of female directors at the heart of this no wave and cinema transgression movement. And looking into it, like they, it's not like they were like had to be jammed in or lifted up. No. They were forty to fifty percent of the movement. Yeah, they were. And it's yeah. like it was something approaching parody. Um, <laughs> And Which it is really shows, amazing. It shows when you make something accessible, it actually gives it. It really changes the creative landscape. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, very true. Absolutely, and 
you just get great value from an all-star roster of talking heads here. You got your Jim Jarmusch, Deborah Harry. Uh, I mean, any wonder they all used her as her their Marilyn Monroe. Oh, I know it's the right. new wave She's movement. Stunning, like, so charismatic and beautiful. real. Yeah, <laughs> um, it's like anyone was like, "Yep, we're putting her in this." Um, John Lurie, who I also love to death. Lydia Lunch, who appears in Autoluminescent and yes. this as well. Um, John Waters, Susan Seidelman, Nick Zed, and the high priestess of the New York Sound, New York City underground scene of this time, Anne Magnuson. Um, they're all here, and yeah, I could just, I could just watch this film again and again and again. I, yeah, I think you're right, Flick. I think the exploring the effects of the hip hop scene aren't necessarily in this film's remit. I think it is more about the no wave and the cinema mm. of transgression. Um, but I did like that they mentioned it. I did like that that was folded within this mm. somehow because Wildstyle is such an important mm. to the hip-hop movement and was so big in in, in making hip-hop accessible um, to a wider audience. And with that, I've brought it back, I've brought it back around to music. <laughs> <laughs> you have. Well done, Paul. Thank you. Thank you. And I do apologize again. Next time, Muscle Shoals, next time we do this. Blank City is now streaming on Doc Play and Canopy and is available to rent or buy via YouTube, Google Play, and Apple TV. Triple R. You are listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Sally Christie, Flick Ford, and myself, Paul Anthony Nelson. Now, please join us in the living room for our final music documentary of the evening. Ryuchi Sakamoto Koda from 2017 is the second feature documentary directed by Stephen Nomura Shibble. From techno pop stardom to Oscar winning film composer, the evolution of Ryuchi Sakamoto's music has coincided with his life journeys. Following Fukushima, Sakamoto became an iconic figure in Japan's social movement against nuclear power. As Sakamoto returns to music following a cancer diagnosis, his haunting awareness of life crises leads to a resounding new masterpiece. Ryuchi Sakamoto Koda is an intimate portrait of both the artist and the man. Flick, as our show draws to its own Koda for the week, what was it that drew you to this film? Uh, this Look, this is a film that I had wanted to watch um, at NIF um, back in 2018, but I sadly missed out on a ticket and um, I know that it later screened at um, ACME for a really limited time, but I, I missed that as well. Um, so I was very, very pleased to see that it was featured on Doc Play. Um, and in a lot of ways now kind of seems like uh, almost the um, best time to be watching this immensely philosophical film about uh, devastating tragedy and um, time, mm-hmm. <laughs> the tragedy of time. Um, look, Sakamoto is such a fascinating subject and uh, I think he's been such a powerful creative influence both in in cinema, um, in music composition, but also in um, like experimental electronic music. There's a fantastic scene with footage from him um, from Yellow Magic Orchestra. Um, they're a Japanese uh, electronic band that formed in like the late 70s and um, they were just like real pioneers in a lot of the synthesizers they were using and, and digital recording technology so it's such a he's such a fascinating subject um 
and I think that the I love the way that this documentary is set up like there's this there's this um it references of course his diagnosis of throat cancer but the narrative isn't really like restrained by it it's not um it, it does talk about the physical toll that the treatment takes on him um and if anything these existential questions um prompts him um and, and I suppose prompts us as viewers to these amazingly wonderful insights, not in, only into like the creative process, but also the human experience um, more broadly. So I was really um, moved by this film uh, in that way. And I, I think it, the, the kind of the subject and also the context of his situation adds so much to that. Um, I love that there's this moment where Sakamoto is explaining how um, pianos have been um, made possible by uh, the imposition of um uh, how does he phrase it? He's got the imposition of, of civilization, and he he talks a little bit how we we refer to pianos being out of tune. Um, and for Sakamoto, he says that when the instrument's tuning uh, isn't you know when it's considered out of tune, it means matter is struggling to return to a natural state. And I I loved this kind of idea of musical instruments as something that we've kind of forced into being and. Um, and also how that kind of is true of him as a person. Like you, he's got like this endless creativity and you get to see a lot of that in the documentary. Um, the director, Stephen Nomura, um, he was also the producer for Sofia Coppola's um, Lost in Translation. Um, I think that this is a really beautiful uh, case study of Sakamoto and it has these like beautiful long takes and, and close-ups of him and it really allows for his story and his life philosophy just to sort of surface and unravel in this like wonderfully meditative scenes. Um, and it has just really prompted me to kind of rewatch a lot of these films. Like I've got, I'm going to be watching The Revenant later tonight. Um, but it also, I think more seriously, it kind of really sparked some deep rumination from me about what music might offer a kind of broken and uncertain world. Um, it really, it's it stuck with me. It continues to stay with me. Mm. One thing I think that would have made this documentary better would be some more Lydia Lunch in it. Really. <laughs> <laughs> Just to make it all of them. And a also to kind of, she would be a Bill Hunter of the week. Yeah, and we had Thurston Bill Moore as well. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. He was <laughs> who was, who was that? Thurston Moore. Oh, <laughs> Yeah. No. But sorry guys let you down but well, I'm glad is... I played a song by those two I'd forgotten Thurston Moore was in auto yeah Lidenesson. so did I yeah. and Lydia but, um... Lunch throwing a knife at Ryuchi Sakamoto's head <laughs> <laughs> that's in the outtakes yes in the blooper reel but um this was the one that I kind of went into knowing the least amount about um Sakamoto and I really love this. I thought this was really beautiful. Uh, what you said, Flick, was interesting about how we are um, told early in the film that he does have cancer and m my thoughts were like, oh, this is going to be fr completely framed around yeah. that. Yeah. And it was really, I think, really smart that it, wasn't because I was thinking this with uh, auto illuminescent. I was like, <laughs> oh god, this is going to be pretty bloody heavy. Too but um, yeah, interesting how you know they did go a little bit into it, but it wasn't the main focus. The main focus was different points of uh, place in the world for him, and yeah, I loved being able to see his process and his influences as well. Like we would, uh, I mentioned before, film has sort of weaved all these together, these music documentaries, with him talking a lot about uh, Tarkovsky and how that 
Um, his work is a major, major influence on him. He's um, and also, of course, Bach as well. So, looking at his process and how he is influenced by directors, how he's influenced by global crisis, was really fascinating. Um, I would have to say the work of his that I'm most familiar with, and I didn't realize he was in the film, is Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence. Yeah. His yeah. score to that is something that it's really beautiful but very memorable, mm. um, really, really memorable. I, As soon as I hear that, I go, oh, it's Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence. And I didn't know that that was him playing alongside David Bowie in the movie. I had yeah. no idea. So he's that was so, a nice surprise. He's so prolific. It's ridiculous. Yeah. If you were to list out his entire work experiences, mm-hmm. it's exceptional. Yeah, Because I think that was the first film that he scored, I think, Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence. Oh, and um, to have something that I, I feel is such almost an iconic score there is incredible for his first film. He would have been in his 20s. Or, um, he was really young. And, yeah, it, it was. I love seeing his process in this film. That was the thing that really made this for me. And, yeah, what a, he seems just like a beautiful man. Was the bucket it? on the head. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I love that. What, wasn't that the whole thing like he um... – he, they offered him to score it, and he's like, "I'll do it if I can be in the movie as well." I think it was the other way around. No, it was, yeah, no, yeah. that's right. Yeah. It was. They wanted yeah. him to be in the movie because he was obviously yeah. a pop star, mm-hmm. and he's like, I, "I'll do it if I can score it as well." And that's yep. how he broke in and did this mm. incredibly memorable score, and then worked with Bertolucci on a couple of occasions with the um, uh, the Last Emperor and the Sheltering Sky, um, and it shows how much of a pain in the ass Bertolucci might have been. To I love with. that story that he told. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of great stuff here. I think if if this week, you know, like if all three documentaries give us one thing, it's like a deep dive into the creative process. Mm. I think all of these films um, go deep on showing how people create and are, you know, different degrees of inspiring within that. I love that, yeah, I love that how much he draws from everything around him you know how much he's it's whether it's a it's a nuclear disaster or the way the rain sounds or you know a a tarkovsky film he's just watched it all feeds into the music and i i really love that um uh i loved his whole you know finding recovering pianos that had been Mm. hit by tsunamis and trying to make them play again and or like you know sort of hearing it um I love, yeah, the the scene where he puts a bucket on his head to sort of goes outside into the rain to hear what the rain sounds like <laughs> mm. on the bucket. Just great. Just lovely stuff. It is kind of, it's funny. My partner said after about halfway through, it's like, this is basically just hanging out with this guy for a hundred minutes, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Like, it's essentially what it is. There's no real structure to this documentary. It's just like, just hang out with Ryuchi Sakamoto as he mm-hmm. does things. Actually, um, in that way, it put me in a similar um mind space to as the beach um Warwick Thornton's the beach that really kind of meditative just hanging out with someone and yeah yeah with this creative genius um and yeah so I I I did uh, yeah I did enjoy this I think I watched it too late at night I think I was you know watching it close to midnight and I did it it was a little you know because it is very gentle and slow and meditative and quiet and I think I was a little lost in that, <laughs> that shade but yeah this is a really beautiful tribute to this artist and and um um a great look at the way the artistic mind works um highly recommend 
So Ryuchi Sakamoto Koda is now streaming on Dockplay and Canopy and is available to rent or buy via YouTube, Google Play, and Apple TV. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R. Triple R. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with uh, Flick Ford, Sally Christie, and myself, Paul Anthony Nelson. Uh, I think um, I think my question about uh, what the first movie I ever saw on a date will be added to Impossible Trivia at some point. Look out for that. <laughs> on tonight's ISO Spotlight on Music Documentaries, we reviewed Autoluminescent, Roland S. Howard, Blank City, and Ryuchi Sakamoto Koda, which are all sc- streaming on the documentary service DocPlay and are available to rent or buy on YouTube, Apple TV, and Google Play. Autoluminescent is also available to stream on Amazon Prime Video. You can also find uh, subscribe to the Primal Screen podcast via iTunes or wherever else you find your favorite podcasts. Please join us next week for the first of our two specials devoted to the films of Myth 68 and a Half, the online edition of the Melbourne International Film Festival. Our social media channels may reveal some of the titles we'll be digging into, so stay tuned to, uh, to uh, Primal Screen on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just uh, search for Primal Screen. A huge thank you to Morty Osborne for editing the Primal Screen podcast, to Killer Carl Chapman for panelling and providing producing assistance for our show, as well as Awkward Date uh, (laughs) double feature suggestion. Thanks for listening to Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. 